Ben Smith, I'm a photographer, and this is my podcast, A Small Voice, Conversations with Photographers. Thanks for listening. Hey folks, this is Ben. This is my podcast, A Small Voice, Conversations with Photographers. Thanks for joining me. Before we start, please go over to iTunes and drop off a very brief review of the podcast if you like it. You can support the ongoing production of A Small Voice by going to bensmithphoto.com slash voice and signing up for a small recurring monthly payment. We're talking a few bucks here. Or by making a one-off donation. So we made it to the half century. It's episode 50, a small but significant milestone that I wanted to mark, if possible, with a heavy hitter. And I'm happy to say that for me, at least, I've achieved that in welcoming Magnum legend David Allen Harvey as this week's guest. David was born in San Francisco in 1944 and raised in Virginia. He discovered photography at the age of 11. Thereafter, he purchased a used Leica with savings from his newspaper round and began photographing his family and neighbourhood in 1956. When he was 20, he lived with and documented the lives of a black family living in Norfolk, Virginia. And the resulting book, Tell It Like It Is, was published in 1968 and recently republished by Burn Books. David was named Magazine Photographer of the Year by the National Press Photographers Association in 1978. He went on to shoot over 40 essays for National Geographic magazine and has covered stories around the world, including projects on French teenagers, the Berlin Wall, Maya culture, Vietnam, Native Americans, Mexico and Naples and Nairobi. His work has been widely exhibited. He's published two major books, Cuba and Divided Soul, based on his extensive work on the Spanish cultural migration into the Americas, and his book Living Proof, 2007, deals with hip-hop culture. In 2011, David produced an award-winning book of his work from Rio de Janeiro, entitled Based on a True Story, which was highly acclaimed for both the photography and its innovative design by David's son, filmmaker Brian Harvey. David's entire creative process during the shoot was documented on the website theriobook.com, where for $1.99 you could, and still can, effectively, attend a virtual workshop to gain an invaluable insight into David's working practices and benefit from his many years of teaching workshops and mentoring. So I recommend you take a visit to riobook.com if you haven't already. Workshops, seminars and mentoring young photographers are an important part of his life. He is founder and editor of the award-winning Burn magazine, featuring iconic and emerging photographers in print and online. David joined Magnum Photos as a nominee in 1993 and became a full member in 1997. He lives in the Outer Banks, North Carolina and New York City. So I knew that David was going to be visiting London for a few days to run a workshop and attend a presentation at the Barbican, and I figured as long as I could get hold of him, I had a fighting chance of him agreeing to chat. And then it looked like I was going to fall at the first hurdle. I didn't hear from him. I knew he was going to have a busy schedule, and I thought I'd blown it, to be honest. So then I thought, fuck it, who dares wins? And I decided on what I knew would be his final day here to take the ball by the horns and physically find the man and let him know how much it would mean to me to get him on for episode 50. There was no information on the Magnum website on the whereabouts of the workshop. Uh, the, the information that they did have on there was inaccurate, basically. And so I did a bit of sleuthing. Sherlock Holmes would have been proud of me. And I went to where I deduced the workshop was happening, which happened to be a 10-minute walk from my flat. And lo and behold, there it was. And I accosted David and, bless him, he agreed to chat. So we sat together in a cold corridor and recorded the conversation you're about to listen to. You may hear the odd sound effect, the odd postman delivering something, someone even practicing the saxophone in the background towards the end. 
Uh, but hopefully none of that detracts from the man himself. A very special thank you goes out to Shannon Gannon at Magnum Photos for her all-round awesomeness and for understanding and ultimately for making it possible. So please do enjoy my chat with David Allen Harvey. It's so great to get you because it's kind of a little milestone for me because it's episode 50 you're going to be. So, you know, it's, it's the half century. That's a half you know? century, that's right. And uh, so, yeah, it's lovely to, to be able to talk to you. Um, so you're doing this, this workshop. Give us a little flavour of what people are learning or what, you know, what you're, you're talking to people about. Well, I generally uh, am only talking about one thing when it comes to uh, uh, mentoring students, which I've been doing since I was a kid, basically. I've been mentoring people since I was a student myself when I was about... 21 or 22 and it's really always been the same thing because i realized early on that photographers artists of all kinds musicians writers painters filmmakers photographers uh reporters such as yourself uh you know you distinguish yourself only one way and that is by having a point of view and by having uh some sense of authorship so that's the only thing that I try to get across to people is to have them, uh, you know, break down a little bit, break down their own barriers and look in the mirror as much as they possibly can and um, face their fear, face their freedom, because freedom is a scary thing when you get it, because you suddenly don't know what you think, you know, many, many, many adults. Mm. So that's what I try to get to. I try to get them to uh, actually... Uh, have a sense of freedom and face their fear and be themselves which sounds easy sounds like what everybody wants but it's the hardest thing for people to do yeah yeah and the other thing i mean you've you've said many times is essentially that you know really it's all about the difference between those who who get it done and those who or those who make it and those who don't is finishing what you've started is that is that another one of the things that's you're trying a, that's a key thing and it's something that i have to work on all the time myself my temptation is always to uh like most of us we get fired up about something uh and then we lose interest somewhere along the line and we don't finish that's just a human it must be a human trait of some kind uh so you need to get that fire in the belly at the beginning and you need to keep that fire in the belly all the way through and that's not so easy to do mm. well is there any way of uh teaching that i i don't know i i uh, students ask me how I keep that and I don't really have a concrete answer for it because I don't you know passion is one of those things it's very hard to tell people how you keep your passion because it's about keeping your passion and it's just like falling in love is uh, is easy keeping uh, a relationship going is much much harder so it's like that so how people do that uh, I don't know and I'm not even quite sure how I do it uh, the best I can do with people that I mentor is to just uh, show them examples. Okay, mm. this is what happened. This is how I did it. How I kept the fire in the belly, I don't know. Right, right. I don't know. Yeah. The other thing seems to be frequently what one sees with with um, photographers just starting out is that there's a kind of lack of, I think you kind of alluded to it um, in, in there earlier, there's a, there's a lack of cohesion or there's a lack of story in a way in some, in some respects. There's people who can shoot pictures but there's no real underlying narrative is that something that you you know find a lot absolutely i mean i think that's uh that is what 
uh, where photographers certainly need to be today. Maybe 10 years ago, just having good pictures, uh, certainly technical proficiency, the ability to work in certain kinds of light, for example, was actually a, uh, a thing that a lot of photographers had and it set themselves apart. Now you, everybody can do that. So now you really have to have something to say. If you don't have something on your mind, if you don't have uh, either a story to tell or a, um, an axe to grind or a celebration to have, uh, then I don't think you're going to be a photographer today. Right. You, need to, you need to have something on your mind. Yeah. And, and that's what scares so many photographers. They just never looked at it like that. Mm. They never thought that that's what the lesson was going to be about. They thought w that, that the lesson was going to be, how do I use light better? How do I compose better? What's the right lens? There's an element of that in there. But just like there would be an element of learning how words come together to form a correct sentence. But you can, okay, so you can write the correct sentence. Now you got to be able to write uh, a novel. Yeah, right. And, and you have to have something a big, to say. There's a big difference. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I guess it's even more so now because, the, the, like you say, the kind of fundamentals are so much easier. Right. We've got we've got better cameras. We've got um, digital technology. We've got all those things right. that you know you can you can take a perfectly decent picture with a phone. But that, what does it mean if it hasn't got you know some underlying uh, there's reason? There's got to have some meaning. There's got to be. Uh, there's that's right. There's got to be a reason. So yeah. theme, reason, story. Again, you could be cynical, you could be funny, just like all authors, you, you, but you've got to have something on your mind. There were a few very clear kind of, um, you know, formative experiences for you as a photographer. And, and I wanted to sort of maybe rattle through, of, through a few of them, um, kind of inflection points as it were. The first one was when you were very young, you contracted polio as a young child. And um, that led you to spend a period of months in hospital. But can you just kind of, uh, articulate in, in which way that kind of set set a pattern in a way or, or kind of created everything that followed? Uh, well, it was kind of a, uh, a lucky break from a creative standpoint because it seemed unlucky at the time, but the only way I could escape that environment was to, I had to read my way out. And uh, my grandmother and my mother sent me a lot of books and that was how I escaped uh, my dire straits, so to speak. And, uh, you know, from books, of course, I learned about story. From, uh, from books, I was able to escape. Uh, I was able to make heroes out of people. Uh, so that was a, a lucky break. I mm. mean, the bad break was a physical one. I got over that. But then, uh, then reading my way out was invaluable. And then spending a lot of time alone after that up until I was about 12 or 14 was also invaluable. So I actually, as insecure as I was from being isolated in the hospital, and I had a lot of insecurities on one level, on another level, by the time I was 14, I really had my act together. I, I knew exactly who I was by the time I was 14, which yeah. most other 14-year-olds have not figured that out. No, or even 20-something. Or even 20-something. No, yeah. so I was very lucky in that way. Yeah. I was emotionally fucked up, mm. yeah. <laughs> to put it bluntly. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, but on another level, I, I knew myself well, and I knew that photography was my thing. And just knowing that, just having those tools, was, uh, helped me to survive being the mm. uh, wild and crazy teenager that I would have been otherwise. <laughs> right. And, you, and your sort of mentors, in a way, were the, were the artists and the people that you, you read about, rather than any kind of... 
you know, actual people. Yeah, around. yeah, that's right. There were not actual people around. You know, there was uh, Huckleberry Finn, mm. and uh, there was Robinson Crusoe, and there was Jim on Treasure Island. Yeah, there were no real people. Yeah, yeah, they were all they were all uh, you know characters in a novel. Yeah. So in a way, you kind of learned to be um, very sort of self, I guess, self sufficient, and and lived in my and completely it, lived in my imagination. Right. Right. But I but I, I I loved living in my imagination. I and I would be in the woods alone or in the sand dunes alone because I was near the beach, and I would pretend stuff. Uh, I would pretend I was this. I'd pretend I was that. And uh, but I just had this uh, incredible urge to sort of make dreams come true or to make stories come true. Mm. I couldn't stand. I mean, I loved that they were in my imagination, but I could also see that the authors of these books were real people. Yeah, I could see that there was the story of of Huckleberry Finn and Jim going down the Mississippi River, but I could also see that there was a man who wrote that story. Right. There were both things. There were the characters that I identified with, and then I identified. I thought, no, wait a minute. Somebody did this. This guy, Samuel Clemens, wrote this story. Mm. And I was fascinated by that. Right, right. Both, so I was fascinated by both things. By Samuel Clemens, the real guy, and then the story that he conjured up in his head because he was living in his imagination, reflecting off of his real life. And then there was the story. I thought, well, that's, mm. that's great. And when did you realize photography was going to be your means of expression, though? Uh, I think I was uh, 12, 13. Mm. And pretty fully formed by 14. And I don't have any idea why that was because my parents weren't into it. Uh, nobody, I was in a, I was in a non, I was in an anti-art community. I was in Norfolk, Virginia, which is a largely military community. And the other, if it's not military, it was tourism. So there was no art in there, no art museums, no libraries, no nothing. So I don't know how... I got interested in photography in that particular place. Right. It was a great place to live for a kid. I was down at the far end of the beach in the woods and the sand dunes, so I had nature there. But I certainly didn't have anything that would be even slightly connected to the world of art and letters, so right. to speak. Right. And your family was your f sort of first subject matter, really, in a way. My family's still my first subject matter. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, that's right. My... Uh, I w uh, yeah, I mean, I had a, a couple of friends, but I was not a social mixer type of kid. And so, yeah, it was my family that I relied upon. So I was either alone in the woods hunting snakes and turtles or I was with my family, basically, mm. with a couple of, couple of buddies. Mm. Well, I think what's interesting, what seems to me is that, you know, you've kind of, like you say, it's still your subject. And you, in a way, you've, you know, you've created families ever since, you know, you've kind of surrounded Yeah, that need for family. Oh, sure. Well, like I said, when I came out of the hospital, and I didn't even realize this until much, much later, I knew that I had some um, emotional problems, but I really needed needed a lot of love after that. I was isolated at six years old. That can't be good for you. No, no. Right? In a room alone? Yeah, no. No, no, that can't be good for you. So, and I never even thought about that or talked about that for many, many years, and my parents just looked at it like, they were good parents, but they weren't aware of perhaps the mental trauma that I'd gone through. Hmm. As far as they were concerned, I was a polio survivor. Yeah, and they were probably... And back in the day, no, they just... 
back in those days they just didn't think like that i survived physically yeah. and that was good enough i mean to to emerge from that experience with no uh, you know physical um that's all they cared about is amazing that was all they cared yeah. about right and but you can see at how the that same can time happen. for yeah. a six-year-old i mean i've yeah, got my dad just wasn't the type neither yeah. one of my parents were the type that were going to be focused on <laughs> right. that i mean i've got a seven-year-old uh, son and and so you know i've become very kind of tuned mm. into the level you're at emotionally and uh, at that stage i mean it sure. would it'd be very it'd devastating it'd be it'd be, it'd be, it'd be devastating and um, but anyway as it as i say it turned out to kind of be a lucky break in mm. the long run in, in the in the big picture yeah but also it kind of it kind of gave you a sort of fortitude in a way you you had an experience of um i think you had an internship with Na national geographic which went really badly went really bad you got and a telegram do you remember what the, the what yeah said? well it's the all-time great uh rejection letter and i think it's published in one of the magnum books maybe but yeah it was from bob gilka who was the director of photography and he was a a drill sergeant militaristic kind of guy a man of very few words kind of he was the uh, general Patton kind of character and he wanted to, and he saw himself as a general Patton kind of character as well and uh, anyway I didn't do well with this assignment and his letter to me was dear David you are young and strong and that is good for what I have to tell you will make you feel sick and old <laughs> So that's like the all-time rejection letter, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I kicked the can around the block. You know, I mean, you're, you're, I was obviously uh, destroyed. I had had success as a photographer before that. I was college photographer of the year on a national level. That's how I got the internship. So I had pretty much succeeded at everything that I, where I was up against other kids my age, I was always on the top of the photography game. Uh, and I won awards in camera clubs and stuff like that. So this was my first kicking the ass okay uh maybe you're not all that great and here's the director of photography telling you that you're not all that fantastic you failed miserably as a matter of fact mm. and um and i thought about that and i thought wait a minute i was very depressed for a few hours maybe for one whole 24-hour cycle uh but again you're right i knew not to stay down for long i was glad to be out of the hospital so everything was still great as far as i was concerned i was alive i was taking pictures uh, and I thought, wait a minute, he did not like those pictures. Guess what? He's right. I don't, and I don't like those pictures either. I didn't like those pictures. It wasn't like he had, he he had destroyed my image of becoming a, a, a National Geographic working for a big magazine photographer. But I didn't like those pictures, and I didn't like taking those pictures either. Hmm. I didn't like color. I didn't like taking those stupid pictures. I didn't like anything about it. I thought, so what he has rejected, he didn't really reject me. He rejected me trying to pretend to be somebody else. Right. That's what he rejected. Yeah. And I thought, well, I reject that too. Right, right. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, good on him. Yeah. So then I went and lived with that black family, and I did the Tell It Like It Is book that you can uh, see there. And uh, I sent that to him later. I spent the month with the black family, went back to graduate school, said, Bob, thank you for the opportunity. Uh, that's clearly not me, but I think this is. And I right. sent him that book. Right. And he wrote me a nice note back, said, nice work. Mm. You know, two words, nice work. <laughs> that's yeah. all he was going to say. Yeah. But weird. that was a, that was great. And then, you know, I don't know, eight years later, the guy hired me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so you did end up yeah, working for National Geographic. Right. But I didn't want to by that time. Right. Well, I guess, you know, it, was, it occurs to me that if he had liked the pictures, um, things might have gone very differently. You, you might have uh, yeah, ended you up know. not, you know. Yeah, that could have been a terrible thing yeah. that would have happened. Because yeah, I would have, I would have, I would have, have succeeded to, with that bad shit. Yeah. 
but where as it was you you i guess learned the most important lesson which is to be yourself and do the stuff absolutely that you that's right that's that is what i learned from that and uh and that's what i did do is that i completely got over the trauma of rejection by totally saying okay this is what i do and i went and did that one and so that was a great um yeah that was a great lesson no, absolutely um so yeah for people who don't know about tell it like it is maybe you should kind of give us the the basics it was um it was a project about a black family you're in virginia i think well i was time. in virginia southern state uh segregation state there were restrooms for black people and restrooms for white people uh we didn't eat at the same restaurants and the only black people that i saw were uh everybody had a maid down at my end of the beach because they were inexpensive and they would come and clean your house, and almost everybody had a maid. And so my mother, we had we were a middle-class family, but like everybody else in that neighborhood, we had a, a woman who would come and clean for us, and then she would get on the bus and go home at night. And of course, my mother, at Christmas time, would we'd take Christmas presents and food and extra food into the black neighborhood, so we would visit the neighborhood then. And then the only other, my only other visit into the black neighborhood is that I would buy illegal whiskey in there. And so I would go in there and hang around, buy my illegal whiskey, have a lot of fun with the people. And I thought, well, I need to know these people. And why are they on the other side of the tracks? And then, you know, as I became a teenager, I became very socially conscious of a lot of stuff. I was against the Vietnam War that we were in. I'd had a Japanese roommate in, in university. And I'm looking hard and cold at my father was fighting the Japanese. And here my best friend was Japanese. Uh, we were in a Cuban Missile Crisis. Uh, there were gay rights, women's rights, and civil rights that were all issues. And I was a hippie kid, so I was for I was for um, you know I was one of those kinds of revolutionaries looking to cure all the social ills by use of a camera. Right? I thought, okay, I can change the world. And so I went into that black neighborhood for real with my camera not having any idea that I would end up living with one family there rather than, I didn't know what I was going to do. I was going to take some pictures and bring them out and show people that, okay, this is what it's like in here. I didn't, I didn't, and I didn't go in thinking that I was going to pictures of poverty. I went in thinking that I would show that black people are just like us. That was my naive uh, concept. And then I met, um, oh, I'm drawing a blank on her name, Callie. Mm. Callie was the uh, mother of uh, seven kids and her husband. There was an intact family there. And she kind of took me in. I took some pictures. I went back to my darkroom. I brought them back the next day like I promised. And so one thing led to another to another. So I ended up sleeping on the sofa and staying there for a month and shooting, I think, 33 rolls of film, which if you multiply it out would be a 16-gig card with a... Uh, 18 megapixel camera so not very much yeah, film it's not a lot of pictures not a lot of pictures but um, anyway so that became tell it like it is yeah and, and and you kind of I guess established you know a way of being very intimate I mean it's that thing about going deep you know going very deep and narrow rather than wide and shallow um, that's about right that's the, right. the microcosm as it were that's right that's the way I looked at it and I'm not sure why I didn't have any teachers that were telling me to do this but I must have read it in one of those books. Mm. I'm, I had some sense of what you needed to do to make a real artistic effort. And I'm not, I can't remember one specific thing that I read, 
But I think all those books together, perhaps the teachings in general from my grandmother and my mother, I can't, again, but I didn't have anybody who was guiding me as a photographer. But I'd seen enough good work in magazines and whatnot, and I guess I just figured out that that's what you had to do. Yeah. And I think you said that that early work is still the best thing you've done, the family and the book. Well, that's it. My, the family album that I did for my grandparents in 1958, which was a gift at Christmas, uh, which you think, okay, this is the beginning of something. And then Tell It Like It Is, which was uh, just an extension of that, going to uh, visit another family. I figured, okay, now I can launch on my career. Well, it turns out, of course, that those two things are so pure I mean, I really even look at that as another David Harvey. It's a, that kid did that stuff, and that's kind of a miracle. So, no, I can't ever beat those two things. Mm. And I've done a few other things in adulthood that I'm, that I'm going to be proud of. But those two things are so pure that they can't be beat, certainly on the pure level. Mm. Mm. Not, uh, you know, totally unencumbered by anything. Not encumbered by National Geographic or Magnum or knowing too much about the business or anything. Yeah, there's something about um, having that kind of naivety it, that's, like you say, there's a purity to it. Which there's brings a purity results. to it that you can't, you can't uh, yeah, the authenticity of those two projects mm. cannot be beat. But of course, I'm pretty pure anyway. I mean, I, I mean even in adulthood, uh, as, as adulthood goes, you know, we go through a lot of trials and tribulations. But I was always managed to escape the reality of the situation. I always somehow figured out how to do it. I would always get myself in a situation where I, where I had my freedom as a photographer, even in my early 20s. Well, tell it like it is. I, I did that right away. Mm. So I had that as a benchmark. I knew that it could be done. Right, right. And I didn't care that I didn't get paid for it. It never crossed my mind that I didn't get paid for it. Right. I did it. Yeah. Got it in print, and bam. And so then I knew that I could probably do anything. And I got a good job at a newspaper out of college, and I stuck by my guns for that. And then because I had, you know, I had done that bad assignment for National Geographic, when I got to Geographic the next time, I only did my own thing there. I wasn't going to allow myself to fail with somebody else's stuff. Right. If I was going to fail, I was going to fail doing the best I could do, and then if the critics didn't like it, so be it. Mm. right mm. Yeah, but yeah. that's different than than doing somebody else's thing and failing right right, right. that's real failure yeah you're failing on your own terms at you least on your own terms yeah. and that's there's a glory in that because you know you're going to fail yeah yeah you know you're going to fail you can't do a hit album and then do another hit album mm. you can't do a, a good film and then do another one yeah so i know i'm going to fail like next time C continually probably. as it were yeah. Oh, yeah yeah i'm about ready to fail i think yeah I saw I saw Alex Webb was in London the other the other day and he did he did a presentation at, at Magnum which was really awesome and and you know I think he's one of the things he said was um, you know what this is ninety nine percent failure what I'm you know what I'm doing here you know ninety nine point nine percent failure you know oh, the, yeah, the images that, you're seeing are the point one percent where it happened right right you just but you, that's right I think you have to be willing to take risks and you have to be ready to fail. And then you get a small percentage of success. And people say, well, that's a very small percentage. And I say, yes, but guess what? It's a percentage. Because mm. most people don't finish what they start at all. Yeah, yeah. At all. So if you have any success, even if it's, a, you know, if you luck out, if you, you can call it luck, you can call it whatever you want to call it. But if you consistently luck out, you know, 5 or 10% of the time, then you're at the high end of the creative bunch, mm, I think. Mm. 
it's it's tough, but no, but there's yeah. a there's a glory in that though. No, of course, it, there's well, a glory it, in that. Well, it makes it it makes the success all the sweeter, I suppose. It's it's root scarcity, right? And and listen, but art is coming from the mud, the blood, and the beer. It's coming from the grit. It's from sleeping in the street. It's not from being successful. Art doesn't come from being successful. Art comes from being from pain, from misery, from needing something. That's why in the hell you create stuff. So success is not the thing that you want to have going for you to create the next big thing. No, you want to be miserable. <laughs> yeah, no. Well, I think you said, sort of, you know, comfort mode is no good. No. The only good mode is struggle and survival, right? No, no. That's right. You gotta, if you're not struggling, you better figure out some way to struggle. <laughs> right? Well, I think a lot of people would be relieved to hear you say that. <laughs> yeah, you know, because I, right, right. For well, a lot of us, there's no choice. Well, there's still, still a burden on them. You can't just stay down there in the mud. Mm, mm. You got to get up and yeah. go. But... Uh, no, you don't want to. Uh, you don't want to put yourself on a uh, pedestal. That's for sure. Yeah, because that's that's only something to fall off of. Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. I, I was kind of very almost um, surprised to hear you say that you're a bit of a, an introvert at heart, whereas um, I think most people would not imagine that to be the case. But um, is is that true? That is true. There, but there's other examples of people like me like that. I've heard. Uh, few famous actors and entertainers who also say the same thing. Clint Eastwood says the same thing, for example, and I'm trying to think. I just was talking to somebody else the other day who was saying the same thing. Uh, I've, I fake being uh, an extrovert. Mm. How do you now, do that? Like I don't know. I just learned how to do it. I mean, I, no, because I could not stand in front of my class in school and even give a book report. To this day... I have to, if to go to a cocktail party or to go to a dinner party where I have to socially engage with, no, I mean, I just cannot make it. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll get with two or three friends. Uh, I usually photograph people that are close to me. So, I, I mean, I really am. I've learned how to uh, do things like this. I've learned how to do interviews, you know, because I've had to interview people, you know, for yeah. my own work. And I've learned how to stand in front of a group of people and and uh, and speak about. Well, that's not that hard. The room goes dark and the pictures come up. Right. I can, can talk about those. Yeah, I can bit. hide in the dark. Right. No, my whole thing as a photographer, in fact, was to not be in front of the camera. Obviously, it was gonna, it was a, it was to be a passive thing. I wanted to experience the world deeply, but I didn't think I could actually be out in it. I thought I could look at it through the viewfinder, mm. you know, kind of hiding in the background and looking out. And I figured that these other artists were doing the same thing that I'd read about. I mean, because you have a sort of methodology in a way. Let me let me read this little quote because I love this little quote from you. You know, photography can be a lonely thing if you're sitting back in your hotel with nothing. So I try and create a life on the job. Some photographers move around, but I just say, okay, this is as good as anywhere. I find a little bar that I like or a grocery store owner that I like. I make friends with them and their families. I try to get connected to a place in every way possible. I make a life there and then I photograph that life. That seems like you know, yeah, that, the essence that's of what you've always done. Yeah, make it really easy, right? Right, yeah. No, I, I mean, what I just said there is ex is exactly what I do. It's exactly the way I am at a workshop, too, with students. I create a little family with the workshop students. So I'm not ever dealing with strangers. Right. I don't know how to deal with strangers. Yeah, but you so, have to make those relationships. So for an introvert, that's quite hard. I mean, that's I, I quite, know. It, it, when I first walk into a class, I'm panic-stricken. Yeah. Right. When amazing. I first go to a place, my first temptation is to lock myself in the hotel. Mm. That's my first temptation. Right, right. 
So I just, but I've just learned how to bulldog through that stuff. And yeah. then that is why uh, I also make friends with the first person I meet. If I'm going to a country, a brand new country, or a brand new place where I don't know anybody, first person I meet, I'm going to take extra time, make friends with that person. I figure I'm going to learn a little bit about the culture, a little bit about the place from that person. Mm. Could be a shoeshine boy. Could be, like you say, the grocery store uh, owner or whoever. Uh, I think in Madrid it was an elevator operator. Right. There was a, I was an elevator operator in the hotel where I stayed, made friends with him. Yeah, so, it, yeah, that's right. I usually try to uh, ingratiate myself with the mm. first person I meet. And also now, because, uh, you know, because you have got this role as a mentor, which is very, very fundamental to, to who you are, um, you know, you've normally got, people you can can take along for the ride or you know you've got you've got a bunch of young people who sort of yeah that's you know right. kind they of help, surround help. you okay. yeah that's right and um and then you got people to photograph right there because they, they know, yeah so yeah well. that's that's exactly right i just came back from playa del carmen mexico and i'm working on this book called beach games and that was this is typical i mean just typical this is what's happened in the last six weeks i met a young woman on instagram who asked me a question I answer the question because I, I talk to my Instagram audience. They send me direct messages. I answer their questions. I look at their work. And I said, you know, she was telling me what she was doing. She was in this Activa photo school. And I said, well, I'd love to come to Mexico and do some uh, photographs on the beach there for my beach games thing here. Uh, you know, you and your friends, I'd love to photograph you guys. She said, well, we would love to have you come to our school and, and make a presentation to the school. And I said, okay, I'll do that. So I just kind of did a trade-out thing. I made, I made, I went, I've worked a lot in Mexico anyway, and I speak Spanish, so I was pretty comfortable already in Mexico in general. Go to this Activa school. They're graduating. This semester they were graduating, and they were all heading for the beach, kind of like a spring break vacation. I said, they said, come along with us. I said, perfect. I said, there's five of you. I said, all I like to do is hang out and take pictures. I did. We had a good time. We drank beer. We smoked weed. We we uh, stayed up all night, and I had a good time. But I was shooting that whole time. Right. There was not a moment when I wasn't yeah. shooting. I mean, you really do shoot a lot, and you talk I about shoot. shooting every day. Right. Yeah. The other thing I've heard, I remember you saying, is you know, be the first to arrive and the last to leave. Is that also another? You could. One you of should, your... Well, ask those kids. They'll tell you. <laughs> yeah. Twenty-five year olds. They couldn't keep up. No. I, I mean, I stayed up all night. Yeah. I stayed up all night, but then I also got up the next morning, and they're you know they're sleeping for the next twenty-four hours. Yeah. They, yeah. They don't, they don't have any. Where do you get the energy from, David? My mom. <laughs> really. My mom. My grandfather. Yeah, they were like that too. Yeah. And but also, it's just this uh, this amazing uh, enthusiasm you have for you know you still love the program. Process. That's the lucky part. Right. Yeah, forget geographic or magnum or any of that stuff. No, the lucky part is having that, uh, yeah, I, would ha I, I wouldn't want to lose that. No. That little Rosetta Stone, whatever that is, that little uh, kryptonite that yeah. Superman had. Yeah. yeah it was, it's that. That gives you the you, energy. Scale. Yeah, you don't want to lose that kryptonite. Wherever that box of kryptonite is, I got to keep that somewhere right. there. Right. But I guess it's a sort of fear of, you know, if, if I leave now, then maybe the best picture of the night is going to be after that moment. You know, why, why would, you know, why, why would I go? Yeah. You never and know. It's not, yeah. And then I'm just, I'm just usually enjoying living the moment. Right. You know, I, I mean, I know I'm going to be taking pictures. Mm. And uh, yeah, that one of the pictures that I got, one of the best pictures was the, these two girls kissing. These two girls have been friends for 10 years. I could see that it was coming. 
I mean, I could see that they were kind of getting into each other. And I thought, I got to be there when this happens. <laughs> right? You know, be there without being there because it was an intimate moment. You can't be there at a moment like that. That's when you can't be Cartier Bresson. He would have been out on the street somewhere. Right. But I was inside this building, inside their lives, and inside in such a way that by the time it happened, I was like a fast like a photojournalist. But I was in there as some kind of human being at this point that they decided I was enough of a friend that I could be there. Right, right. And they knew I was taking pictures, kind of. But still, I had to move very quickly and uh, be the fly on the wall after I was deep inside. Right, yeah, you've already, sta- you already established already, a level of intimacy. That's right. Which, you know, you're not going to get treated with that's suspicion. Right. Or, that's right, yeah. that's right. Well, I, I wanted to ask you about, um, based on a true story to some extent, because this is also... Uh, an example of all of that. Um, this is your work in, in Brazil. That's, that's, that'll be the... Okay, the, my thing is, if I were writing my obit, it would be the family project, tell it like it is, and then the other thing I did that I think also is pure, as pure as an adult thing, as, a, and as an adult artist can do, is based on a true story. Yeah. And I doubt I'll ever do anything better than that. Mm. I think that was it. Well, there are lots of there are lots of elements to it. Um, let's let's walk through a couple of them. Um, the first is uh, you have a way of shooting which just you make it look a bit easy. Which you right, know, right. do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, no, I, it, well, it is easy. I do. It is, I, I have made it easy. Right. But getting easy is hard. <laughs> right. Yes. It's taken you a lifetime to yeah, it's, get no, to that it's, point. You know, it's it's well, well. That's the cliche, though, isn't it? When you yeah. when you've mastered something, you make it look easy. That's that's how it works. That's how it works. Um, but one thing you did, which I which I thought was was brilliant, was um, you you created a sort of uh, a little paywall um, whereby we could all, f- you know, for a very nominal dollar ninety nine, come with me to Rio, price of a cup of coffee, kind of thing, yeah. or less. Um, you you gave us an insight into the process, and it was great. Are you any plans to do that again? I I, I don't have a plan to do that again, but I, I don't know why. I guess well, the um, I I think that. Nobody had ever done a paywall really successfully in retirement. I just wanted to give it a try. I wasn't quite as involved with Instagram at the time, so we created a little website. And I thought, well, this might just work because $1.99 is not very much money, but if you've got 20,000 followers at $1.99, then you've got enough money to get the thing done. Absolutely. And that's basically what happened. Those people had a vested interest in the book. Yeah. They watched me from the airport in Norfolk, Virginia. They watched all my mistakes. Yeah. They watched my whole relationship thing going. By the way, that later became a little book. The The Germans made a book out of that. Really? Yeah. It ah. exists as a little uh, uh, special edition book. Wow. Cool. Of, of that. Of, they reprinted all those posts. Yeah. So I'd post mistakes. I'd say, oh, I'm tired. I'm not going out. You know, whatever. I would answer everybody's questions. So it was a little mini workshop. Fantastic. For, for $2. And then, and then they got a 10% discount on the book. On the and book. then, of course, all those people just had a vested interest in the book. Yeah. I think one of these people in here told me they were one of those Well, people. I was one of them, David. I tell oh, you that you were much. One of them. For sure. Yeah, yeah, of oh, course. Really? Oh, Absolutely. Yeah. That's how I know about it. And oh, the, really? You know, I think it was a brilliant model. Because like you say, you know, this is how you leverage the the internet by having, you know, uh, it's it's the 
you know the way to to do it you've got a lot of followers 199 is a dollar 99 is nothing right it's not, no. it's, not some, it's not an amount of money you have to think about no, you go, and, and a I'm month like, on the road yeah. yeah and and for the like you say the amount of insights that one could get from that was was just fantastic i enjoyed the hell out of following you on that process but you know yeah i'm you know certain people were like i think because you, you would you just go nuts you shoot on a phone you shoot on this you shoot on that and and yeah. i think it's fascinating to see you you're very sort of unprecious about the process right and some people are like oh, but are those and then when you see the final product it's like wowza you know the other thing of course was the was the way the book was designed the, yeah that's uh, my we, son yeah, that's my son right that's and, all brian that's all brian and that's in the new the new magnum book uh it talks about him and the design yeah both of my sons uh traveled both of them are filmmakers and both of them traveled with me uh around on various assignments around the world I didn't take him to Disneyland, but I did take him to Malaysia. Right. You know? So yeah. they, they saw the elephants in the jungle. Yeah. But uh, so I took my kids with me. They both became filmmakers. And uh, one of them I've worked with a lot. And the other one I haven't worked with much. Um, but um, yeah, the, the oldest one uh, did the design of the book. And that was the like the perfect. That was the other reason I'll never be able to do that good again. That was the perfect collaboration. The woman who was my muse, Candy, became a good picture editor. She was in my pictures. She was part of the story. The background was photojournalism, like getting in with the drug dealers and the wealthy class and the police. I had all done as a standard photojournalist. But then that one month with Candy as my muse and the friends that I lived with and the antics that we went on, which was what you saw on the $1.99 bit, uh, that was just a miracle thing that happened. Mm. And then Brian happened to have enough time off to be able to spend six weeks in my loft in New York. And we got the whole family up there, and we just, he, were he, I mean, I was just kind of an assistant by that point. I mean, literally. I mean, he just got in this maniacal mode, and he got this look on his face for like four weeks in a row and was putting pages, and he made this like, Rubik's Cube mm. design that's somewhere between a movie and a book and some whole new thing by itself that actually nobody even has tried to imitate since to tell you the truth it's such a one of a kind thing yeah no it, unbound books of course yeah it was, it but, was but inspired the, yeah it was that's right it was one of those inspired things father and son he had also done a film on me in, in uh, Rio de Janeiro prior to that he also knew the cast of characters and he knew me he knew me better than I knew me. I mean, he knew all, he knows all my bullshit. My son does, right. unfortunately, <laughs> sadly. Yeah. But so he was able to do his thing. Brilliant job. Yeah, that book would not have existed without Brian. Absolutely, mm. and, and, or me. I mean, we both had to be in on the deal, yeah, and it course. was great. Yeah. But I mean, I guess we should, I should try try and somehow um, articulate what what we're talking about. The the book was, like you say, loosely bound. You could take it. You could almost take it apart and re reconfigure the images in a different. We, we you could make different people. narratives. Well, we we dare people to do that. Yeah. We 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 leave it open bound so that they absolutely can do that. We've got a map so they can put it back together again. But we really kind of defy anybody to put it together better than the way we have it. Right. Because you could make it kind of look cool without it, but we really were so careful in the way that thing was. It, you could die. You could look at it diagonally. You can. You can. There's really, literally, thousands of different ways of looking at that book. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can come up with. I forget what the number is, but it's like thousands of combinations. And uh, but there's, we we make it so there's really only one way to read it as a novella. 
but yeah you don't have if you decide that that's too we don't force you to do that we right. want you to do that right yeah but we don't force you to do that no no you can you just go. take it i mean Kadelka took it all apart and just looked at the pictures you know <laughs> You right. can no. It, it also looks good up on a wall in 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 Australia where we opened the exhibition. We had the uh, the book as it was, and then we had prints on the wall. But we also had uh, the book all spread out. You know, both sides of the book. You know, it took up a big wall space. Mm. It's cool that way too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, my only regret is I didn't take advantage of the ten percent discount. I didn't buy a copy, <laughs> David, and I wish to God I had. Well, you, you know? should have. Well, I'll, I'll give you. I've, I've got the magazine version here. Oh, I'll, 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 I'll send that with you. Oh, thanks, man. That's fantastic. Yeah, because um, then you can really take a look at it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, that thing is that that book is like uh, the collector's market. I think it's like fifteen hundred dollars side for that original uh, one. I can imagine. Yeah, yeah. I think yeah, it could. It would have been about ninety quid or something to buy it, which would have been at the time a great right. investment. Yeah, it would have been a good yeah. investment. Yeah, you should have bought a couple of them. I and sold have. one. You'd be <laughs> well. I just I wouldn't have sold it. I probably. I mean, I know. I know. Yeah. I always buy books. I yeah. never buy books on time myself. I'm a, I'm a collector. I always right. I Once you bought, much. yeah. But you seem to be in a kind of. I think you talk about being in a sort of um, in the zone, as it were. Yeah. When you're shooting, um, some people that's been defined, you know, there's sort of psychologists talk about flow. I don't know if you've ever come across that term, but it's the same it's thing. It's the same thing. Is this this idea that, um, you know, you're just in this kind of very special zen, state. It's yeah. a zen state. Can you kind of can you talk about it a little? Uh, well, I can I can tell you that it happens, and I've never uh, studied uh, meditation. I mean, I've. I've done cursory reading on what meditation is. Mm. Uh, and I did, I was a Buddhist monk uh, for a few days. But I somehow get in a uh, meditative state, not officially, nor professionally, nor do I even know what I'm talking about. Right. But it's Dave Harvey's version of meditation. Right. 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 Which probably doesn't get approved by anybody who's actually really into it. But, but it works for me. Yeah. Works for me where I'm able to get in a state of mind that absolutely, uh, I think athletes and performers get in that state where they're, you know, maybe a, a football player gets in that state with thousands of people out there, but they're only seeing the ball and the play and they're able to, yeah, yeah uh, race drivers probably get into it, actors probably get into it. So I'm sure it's not a, it's not an unusual state of yeah. mind for people to be in, but well, I can get into that. Yeah, for people, you know, people performing extremely high level I think like you say it is probably quite common but I think a lot of for a lot, or a lot of us it's uh, it's kind of this mysterious thing that you know you have to uh, try and figure out how to how to get into <laughs> it achieve yeah 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 and it's and it's absolutely not easy and I can't do it every day mm. you know I try to set up the set of circumstances that would allow me to get into it but when you do get in the zone when you are in that place it's uh it's the ultimate it's the ultimate drug mm, mm. the ultimate sensuality i mean and it's like all that you're really buzzing high and you know you're getting it you know that it's happening and you know that you're in a one-time experience i'm even talking to myself in the middle of it i mean i can imagine it now working and when that happens and then it's just the absolute after best after sex you've ever had right. <laughs> it's like yeah, it's, it's a good way of it's, it. i don't know how else to put it yeah. i don't want to be coarse about it but it's it's like that right right it's like that okay well i guess yeah not all of us will get to experience it but i guess we can all aspire to it um the other kind of i guess the other inflection point was magnum for you right um how did that happen 
Well, it happened that uh, when I signed on the dotted line at National Geographic, I hated myself. Oh, really? Yeah, I, I was filled well, with... Well, you felt like you'd sold out. Yeah, I think I yeah, absolutely felt like I sold out. I, as I was signing the, the paper, I'll never forget, I got to the Allen part. I, got, I wrote David, and I got to Allen, and by the time I was through Harvey, I thought, oh, shit, you know, I fucked up here. Right. Uh, but it was going to make my wife happy. It was guaranteed money. There were all the reasons to do it. They loved me at the Geographic. Uh, I had overcome that other failure. By now, I was ceased succeeding there. Uh, you know, I was magazine photographer of the year on an international level, so I had everything going. Bosses all like me, and I thought, you know, this isn't quite right. It took me seven years to get out of that. And it took me, yeah, I, and I got unmarried and out of the geographic all at the same time. Cause I was married to a woman, and I was married to National Geographic, and I was not quite comfortable with either one of those situations. <laughs> Midlife crisis. Yeah. But midlife, midlife crisis is a real thing, you know, and you can happen to you several times in your life, and sure. you just deal with it, and you move forward. And uh, so it took me a while to get out of that, but I did, and uh, and I knew that, and Magnum was always out there. I just knew that that was a much higher level. National Geographic, as good as they were, it, after all, was one magazine with one point of view. And they had the money to keep you out in the field forever. It was a luxurious kind of photography job. But I knew that Magnum was where I really, really belonged. But, of course, it wasn't like I quit Geographic and joined Magnum. Matter of fact, having National Geographic on my shoulder was, was Magnum didn't like that. They didn't like color, nor the American part, nor the, I mean, I had those three things going against me, National Geographic, American, and color. It, right. it sounds bad, right? Yeah, right. It just sounds a little well, too. Certainly at that time. a little too, too, right? Yeah, right, exactly, yeah. And, and only when they found out that I was an ex extremely selfish individual did they get, uh, did I get in, no, they could see that I was artistically selfish, that I hadn't been co-opted by the National mm. Geographic. And in fact, I had quit National Geographic at that at the peak of it, not at the not at a low point. Mm -mm. You know, at the yeah, it's funny because that. that's what a lot of people know you for, and and, and yeah, that's they're, the work they're, they're, I'm always going to have that tagline. Yeah. I'll, I'll embrace it one of these days, right. but I've rejected it for the last twenty years. Yeah. Now one of these days I'll embrace the geographic. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So Magnum, it seemed to you, I guess, that um, these guys who were in that agency were doing the kind of thing you wanted to do. They were making books. They had it all going on. Yeah, they were making books, and they were looking at it from different points of view. Yeah, Magnum had always been an ideal, even prior to Geographic. As a matter of fact, I'd had a flirtation with Magnum uh, back when I was before Geographic. Uh, but my wife was against Magnum. Right. Magnum is not something that wives like. Why? Because it would take up all oh, your time. Oh, take up time. no, take up time, and the money situation was always bad. Yeah. National Geographic was a nice, a good salary, gig. Yeah, good yeah, gig. Yeah. And Magnum was like, what did that mean? Right. Yeah. You know, they're gonna they're taking a lot of kudos, but no, no money and no uh, money <laughs> and uh, no guarantees right. of anything, and which of course I loved all that. I yeah. loved the renegade thing. I loved the whole. I didn't give a shit about the money anyway. Yeah, you were kind of made for Magnum in a way. I guess. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, um, yeah, so you got in, and um, look, who, were, who were your guys at that time? Did you have any people who were your mentors there? Uh, there was nobody at Magnum that was a mentor, literally. Mm. I mean, but I had grown up with uh, Henri. 
Right. You know, with HCB, Henri Cartier-Bresson. So he was he was my main mentor. Right. And he was and still I very wanted, much Yeah, no, I, when I was in college, I tried to copy Henri Cartier-Bresson. That's who I was. I was a street photographer trying to copy Bresson when I was uh, 18 or 19 in university. Right, right. right. And... Um, but then, of course, you have to break away from those that you are looking up to. You have to break away to some extent. He uh, didn't like color. Mm. He hated color. And I thought, well, hmm, I'm not so sure about that. Why would he hate color? Because I'm looking at, all these, I'm looking at Caravaggio, and I'm looking at Goya. I'm looking at some painters, and I'm thinking, color's not that bad. Color can be artistic. Mm. But I saw what he was talking about with black and white. And I was printing everything in black and white. And uh, so I got a grant from the Virginia Museum of Fine Arts and I started experimenting with color. And then the other thing was, his other philosophy was being distant, you know, being the fly on the wall. He didn't know anybody. And you, you don't get the feeling that Henri's hanging out with any of his people. Right. Right. And there are a lot of great photographers like that. Alex Webb's like that too. Alex is distant. A lot of photographers are distant. But, but that wasn't my personality. Again, this family thing, getting to know the family. I, I'm going to be out there having a beer with people and a beer in my left hand and a camera in my right. And that was just not Henri's way, right? I did still believe in his fly on the wall, but after you were inside. Mm. So I broke from him that way. Right. But still kept his basic thing of, of capturing the moment. Uh, and using one camera and one lens, one film, keeping the equipment simple and just concentrating on the picture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, it was a little bit of a break. Yeah. And it's funny to think that you, you know, again, you were, you started off with black and white. You were someone who didn't, you rejected color completely. You weren't interested. But then most people, I think, can see you as a quintessential color photographer. I know. And I tell, yeah, but I still see myself as a black and white photographer. Really? Actually, well, the last two published books were both in black and white on the, uh, the Lady Divers, the Henyo. Uh, and Tell It Like It Is, which I republished. But, right. of course, that's a republished book. No, I, f I tell people, and it's true, that I shoot color and black and white exactly the same way, and all of my color pictures are just black and white pictures with just a tiny bit of color. Mm -hmm. They're all monochromatic. Right, I mean, right. if I'm looking at you right now, I could take this picture in black and white or in color. It's got enough going for it in color with the warm light on your face. Mm. It's also a black and white picture. Right, right. If you look at all of them, they can all turn into black and white pictures. Yeah, of course. Even though people are seeing this rich color, they're only seeing one color. You're only seeing one color. Yeah, I guess, you know, it's, it's horses for courses, isn't it? There's so many different ways uh, that photographers approach it. And for some photographers, the color is, is an essential part of the composition. You know, it's, 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 they use the color in a, in a particular Well, I try way. to use it wisely. But again, like Caravaggio, uh, you know, who uh, is basically monochromatic too. He, the only color he threw in, he would throw in a red cape or something like that. Right, but, yeah. uh, there wasn't much color there. Goya, monochromatic also. So Martin Parr's got a lot of color in his pictures, and yeah. so does Alex Webb, but I don't have much color in my pictures. No. One more little quote from you to wrap right. it up. All right. Um, because I think this is important. Uh, one second. I've made more mistakes than anyone else, done all sorts of things the wrong way, made more of a mess of things than the average person. Hell, I'm trying to figure out how I'm going to pay my mortgage next month. This was a while ago. Yeah, <laughs> It's a lot of work trying to live the life that you want to live, but that's what I'm doing. You said that. I, is that still the case? Uh, that's very much the case. Yeah, that's very much the case. Yeah, that, uh, again, that's going back to the uh, making the struggle work for you, you know. Yeah, I don't want to be too, um, uh, I, I like having my feet right on the ground, you know? I mean, 
the thing, if you have your feet on the ground, you can see where you're going to fall. You're gonna, you, you can sleep right over there in the corner. You're going to make it You're just because the ground is right there. Uh, you start putting yourself up on pedestals, and you just got a long way to fall. Like Donald Trump, for example, he's going to take the big fall, right, eventually, because he's probably going to take a lot of people with him, unfortunately. Yeah. No, but no, I think that uh, hubris, uh, hubris, I think about hubris a lot. I think about uh, Shelley and uh, Ozymandias. You know, uh, I think, uh, no, I don't think you want to get too big for your britches. I think you got to keep a humble, I think you want to stay humble. You want to be confident. You want to have something to say with your art. But I think, you, no, I think you need to, um, the minute you start thinking you're above the gods, so to speak, yeah. then you're fucked. <laughs> perfect place to end it thank you so much david i really appreciate you making the time to talk it's been a pleasure all right ben i'm gonna get you that book right this second thanks man